Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. Today is the, what, Delaney, Thursday, April 6th? Is that what day we're on? It is. Man. Ready it, for the weekend. I am ready for the weekend. I tell you what, I'm driving and uh, I'm, I'm on the road, I guess I should say, and the sun is out. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It feels like spring. According to my truck thermometer, it's 85 degrees, but I don't think that's quite right. Um, oh, your truck. I figured you'd be driving your ugly gold car. Beautiful, beautiful, amazing <laughs> 1978 Lincoln Continental Mark V. Not beautiful. It is in the shop getting uh, new brakes, <laughs> new caliper, you know, just, just a little money, just a little uh, oh. little investment in the future. But I tell It's you, your old man car. It is, it is a fly automobile. Um, <laughs> I, I was coming up through uh, Kansas. I was in Kansas yesterday and Nebraska the day before, and I'm coming back through Kansas, and I came through St. Joe, and uh, I stopped and looked at the the old St. Joseph Livestock Exchange building, mm-hmm. and it looks like they've got some scaffolding around, like maybe they're going to try to do something. It's just, you know, I know things change, but it just kind of makes me sad to see a structure like that sitting empty yeah. when it used to be, you know, the lifeblood of uh, right. supplying meat throughout the uh, central United States. You know, it's things change, I guess. Yeah, and the Kansas City stockyards are pretty cool. You drive right through them if you're going downtown Kansas City. But uh, That's right. Did I you drive through that. there, too? No, I didn't because I came up through St. Oh, Joe. Oh, okay. Oh, yep, okay. Yep, I that's came my to old stomping ground, you know. Atchison and, uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. You're you're a uh, 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 wannabe Missourian. <laughs> Well, Delaney, Something do we like have that. much uh, going on in the world of news today? Well, there's not a lot of big things coming out today. Um, and we have a really good interview later, so I don't want to take too much time to go through some news. But the National Pork Producers Council and the pork industry are trying to rally Congress and the Trump administration to allocate $150 million to foot and mouth disease. And... Uh, I don't really think that there's a plan of action in place for if an outbreak occurred. So they say this funding is very crucial if something like that were to happen. Hmm. Okay. Well, maybe they can get uh, at least get the ball rolling and uh, we could be a little more prepared so it doesn't get caught flat-footed like with avian flu. Exactly. Yeah, although we've been foot and mouth disease-free since, what, the 30s? Yep, that's it was saying 1929, I think, was the last outbreak. So, you know, it's probably not likely to happen, but there's always that small chance and we don't want to be waiting around for it to happen. So exactly. And, uh, you know, I mentioned I was in Kansas. There was some news uh, yesterday out of Kansas. The USDA has decided to allow emergency grazing on CRP land in Kansas, Oklahoma and Texas. Um, you know, I, it probably not going to be enough acres to really make a huge difference, but hopefully folks can get in there. They can bail up some uh, stored stored forage. They can, you know, run some uh, run some cows out there on those fields and, you know, maybe alleviate some of the challenges that those wildfires have caused. Mm. Well, one more quick story here before we go to Kurt Dahlmeyer's interview. A lot of bio, or a lot of mergers have been happening in the agronomic industry, and the European Union approved Wednesday of the Chem China Syngenta merger. So that would be the world's sixth biggest biotech giant, and also hopefully uh, anticipated to pass this year too is the 130 billion dollar merger of 
Dow Chemical and DuPont, and then also the Bayer Crop Sciences Monsanto merger. So a lot of those big mergers are going to be coming out here. And I think we had some news the other day about some of those, too. Some of those have to sell off branches or entities that they own yep. so that they don't control too much of the market share. But uh, I believe that uh, a lot of these companies are now just waiting for international approval of the mergers. Before they can uh, go ahead and, and start combining. Right. Um, let's see, Delaney, before we get to Kurt, should we talk about the markets real quick? Yes. All right, let's, let's start in the corn pit. May corn down four cents, closed at 360 and three quarters. December corn down three and a quarter, closed at 386 even. Soybeans, oh, we broke back down again today, down two and three quarters, finished at 941 and a half on the May contract. Novi beans down three and a quarter, closed at 950 and three quarters. In wheat, down six and three, excuse me. May wheat was down six and a half cents, end of the day at four twenty-three and a quarter. December wheat down six and a quarter, closed the day at four seventy and three quarters. Looking over at livestock, April live cattle up on the day fifty-two and a half cents, closed at one eighteen eighty. June live cattle up seventy cents, closed at one ten twelve and a half. In feeder cattle, front month April feeders up a dollar forty-two and a half, closed at one thirty-one ninety-five. May feeders up a dollar seventy-five, even. Ended the day at 132.17 and a half. Let's take a quick look at hogs. Here we go. April lean hogs up 30 cents, finished at 63.92 and a half. May lean hogs up a dollar 20, finished the day at 69.55. Now, Delaney, you mentioned the fella's name that we're talking to. Could you give us a little more information on this upcoming interview? I would love to. So we will be talking to Kurt Dahlmeyer, and he is from Washington, Iowa. Iowa State alum, and he raises cattle. And uh, I know Kurt, actually, because my father custom feeds for Kurt. So he's been doing this for, oh, my goodness, I think probably, man, it's probably been close to 10 years now. So he's a, he kind of knows what he's doing, but uh, we'll just let Kurt explain his story in depth. So joining us now is Kurt Dahlmeyer. He is another southeastern Iowa boy, and he raises cattle. He has a custom feed operation and has what we said four employees, one of them being my father and also my brother who custom feed for Kurt. But uh, Kurt, tell us your background with cattle feeding, where you went to school, what really got you involved in the cattle industry? Well, I guess, uh, Delaney, it all started... Uh, back in 4-H, and uh, I started with uh, one bucket bottle calf, uh, and I lived in town, actually. And I raised that calf uh, at a little small lot on the outskirts of Washington, Iowa, and that's where I got my uh, start and love of cattle. And from that one head, uh, it's grown to, we try to finish anywhere between 2,500 and 3,000 head a year. So uh, we've come a long way since that one calf back in 1988 now growing up in town kurt how did you uh how did you end up getting out into the country getting your first feed yard was it just the right opportunity came along or what did that look like you know um it was the right opportunity um i had uh, a grandfather who purchased the, the farm that we currently live on uh which was the 1977 farm progress show and on that farm there was a uh cattle feeding set up, uh, one with a, a deep pit that was a early 1970s style barn. Oh, wow. And uh, we're, we're currently using that barn today. It uh, 
we we're not using the pit. We went ahead and filled the pit in because it needed some work and and uh yeah, the technology I feel was just a little bit outdated compared to some of the new barns that they have today. But um that's kind of where I got my start and uh we've added some buildings and then uh as Delaney said, uh her father feeds for me and he's using some hoop barns and all of our all of our barns are deep bedded barns and that's uh kind of how we've been feeding cattle now but uh probably my next expansion will be uh looking into a, a deep pitted building and i think uh i think that's probably the the route that we're going to take uh with the next expansion uh probably in the next five years hopefully what is the difference between those two types of buildings between a hoop shed and a deep pitted is that what you called it yeah you know um you've got a, a hoop barn that's uh got the fabric canvas top and or you've got kind of a monoslope roof that's uh, a steel roof. And, um, you know, those are kind of the two different styles of barns that we currently use. And then um, we deep bed everything now. And so basically we've got solid cement under the cattle, but then we build a pack using cornstalk bales. And uh, we'll build a pack that'll get, oh, maybe up to three foot deep before we clean it out. And uh, we maybe only have to clean that bed pack two or three times a year and start back over. Uh, now the deep pit that I talked about is uh, basically a, a slatted barn that'll have concrete slats with a with a gap and then uh, it'll have a 10 or 12 foot deep uh, manure storage underneath the building. And so, uh, you know, we won't be using corn stock bales and uh, we'll probably have rubber slats on top of the, uh, the cement ones. And uh, that way, basically, it'll save a little bit of labor. Uh, because we only have to handle the, the manure or the, the bedding area once a year instead of uh, having to maintain it, you know, every week, uh, right. like we do with our current gotcha. building. Okay. And you won't be putting up, needing to put up near as many corn stalks either, because what do you feel? <laughs> you put one or two in per bay per week on the bed pack barns, um, or know, less than that? It, it kind of varies, Mike. Uh, we, bale, we bale about 3,500 corn stalk bales a year right now. And so uh, we kind of figure about one bale per head a year. Okay. Um, so that's kind of, you know, uh, our rule of thumb that we use. And uh, some years uh, we get by with less, and other years when it's a little bit wet or maybe a rougher rougher winter with a lot more snow, uh, we'll have to use more bales. But uh so we'll go. We'll cut down some of our cost and and labor when we uh, go to a deep pitted barn for sure. Gotcha. Now, Kurt, when you look out at the world today, um, we've had the new administration come out. He's uh, President Trump is doing some regulatory rollbacks, but it would seem like the cattle indus- cattle feeding industry, uh, as well as agriculture between waters of the U.S. and all these other things, we've seen an increase in regulations. Are there anything? out there that that has you worried as a uh, as a custom feeder as a cattle feeder well probably one of them that's close and dear to us because we also run a trucking business uh as well is uh what the fmcsa has in place and that's the federal motor carrier safety administration and they're implementing electronic logging devices come december 17th of this year that uh, every truck that's 2000 year model or newer has to have one of these and basically it gps tracks your truck 
And currently they say the trucks or truck drivers are only allowed to drive 11 hours at one period, and then they have to have a 10-hour break. And in the livestock world, um, that sometimes is an issue. If, uh, you know, like for us, Dodge City, Kansas, which is where we take a lot of fat cattle, is right on that edge of 11 and a half to 12 hours away. And, and it just, uh, you know, we can't sit a load of cattle or, you know, in southeast Iowa, we've got a lot of hog guys, but you can't sit a, a load of cattle for 10 hours, especially in the summertime or any time of year. I mean, that's just right. inhumane. And mm-hmm. so I, I talked with a FMCSA official down at Louisville, uh, Kentucky, at the National uh, Truck Show that was just a couple weeks ago, and I brought up some of the concerns with uh, this new rule that maybe livestock haulers should have an exemption. And they said, no, it's uh, a one-size-fits-all type deal. Um, the only problem is most other uh, uh, commodities hauled can be parked alongside the road for a 10-hour break. Um, livestock is, is a perishable commodity, and um, their only answer to us was uh, make sure you uh, put two drivers in the truck, and uh, that's going to raise raise the cost to somebody. You know, more than likely, the consumer is going to have to pay more or uh, the cattle feeder is going to have to take that cost and uh, going to have to figure out a way to, to deal with it. But uh, that was their answer is two drivers. Or they said just unload them along the road and rest them somewhere. Hmm. Oh, my gosh. I think, uh, <laughs> I think you and I know that uh, there are just not facilities like Casey stores around the country that when the <laughs> truck gets to his 11 hours, you stop and unload them, and then you've got the issue of um, who's going to feed and water them, who's going to pay that bill, who's going to watch the livestock so that the the correct ones get, uh, you know, reloaded onto that same truck. Uh, Then you've got biosecurity issues, you know. In cattle, biosecurity is not as important, but it is still an issue. And, uh, you know, they keep talking about having a national ID system, and... If they expect all these um, cattle trucks to be unloading and reloading cattle halfway in the trip, um, it it just makes for a, I think, for a a major problem in the livestock sector. So that's probably the one thing I would like to see the Trump administration address and and at least maybe try and, um, you know, suggest an exemption or uh, different rules for livestock haulers because... um, it's a it is a very important issue when you have animals out there. You just can't sit alongside the road for a ten hour break with them. Now, Kurt, you're not the only cattle feeder who's been concerned about this. I was up in North Dakota, and there was a fair number of cattle feeders up there expressing the same concern because they're also hauling to Dodge and Garden, and they've got to figure out how you can get them there under this mm-hmm. time frame. Are there any groups that you're aware of working to raise this issue to the uh, president's attention or at least to the administration's attention? You know, there's a few. There's um, OIDA, which is a owner-operator independent driver association group that uh, is trying to fight it. But, uh, you know, it's it's been really pretty quiet. Uh, a lot of people haven't heard much about it, uh, kind of like the wildfires that went through mm-hmm. uh, Kansas and Oklahoma, you know, uh, People just assume and expect um, that food, whether it's milk or beef, pork, uh, to be at the grocery store, to be in the refrigerator. And they, a lot of people don't understand how it gets there. And uh, 
I think it's an educational thing that needs to be addressed that uh, some people need to say, uh, you know, we really need to take a take another step back and look at this. And and the the people from Washington D.C. at the FMCSA, they uh, said, well, we understand. And I said, well, then why can't you guys maybe address this in your office? And they says, well, that's not our job. We, we agree it might not be a one-size-fits-all, but you need to contact your senators and representatives. And we all know that um, they listen, but unfortunately it might come too late. And uh, it, it's just going to be a real a real struggle out here in the, in the transportation world for livestock. Um, wow. And another issue that, that is kind of with that is, you know, the increased weights that livestock haulers can use um, with a spread or a triple or a quad. You probably see these great big trailers with all these axles under them now. But they make us livestock haulers run on the state highways. We can't haul that extra weight on the interstate system, which is built for the heavier loads, and you don't have to deal with farm traffic or, or small towns or people pulling out in front of you. And so since we're forced to run on the, the county and state roads, that also makes our trip take longer, and so that just kind of compounds the problem that uh, now we're having to take a, a route that's going to take longer than be allowed to run on the interstate, which would be a much faster uh, way to get there. So we've got a couple issues that, you know, are that's just one side of, of, you know, raising livestock, but it's a very important side because, you know, not only to get the market, marketed animals down to the processor, or the packer, um, there's a lot of cattle that come out of the south and the east that come into the Midwest uh, to be fed out. Yep. And it's, it's, it's a lot longer trip than, than uh, what the DOT is, is telling us that we can, can drive. And, and uh, it's something that uh, is definitely going to need some, some attention here in the next several months. Mm. Kurt, I remember last, I think it was last Christmas break, I was saying I wanted to have you teach me how to drive truck, and I don't think I want to <laughs> learn that anymore. <laughs> you know, it uh, it's one of those things that uh, if they would just let us drive when we're alert and, you know, when we're tired, take a nap, that'd be great. But right now with their current regulations, if you're tired but that's your your time to drive now, you have to drive. Um, it, it's kind of, you know, they just took the common sense out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they, I don't know, maybe, maybe Mike gets, uh, 10 hours of sleep every, every night, but I know I, I don't sleep for 10 <laughs> hours in a row, but that's what they're, that's what they're telling us is that when we reach our 11 hours of driving, we have to sleep for 10 hours. And I don't know many people that sleep for 10 hours. Yeah. Unless it's a college student. Yeah, so. Exactly. And then they're not just sleeping, they're sleeping something off. <laughs> they might be. <laughs> What's going on in the world of cattle feeding? Well, from my perspective, things are uh, looking up. You know, uh, we had an opportunity in the last, uh, I'd say, last three to four weeks uh, to maybe make some uh, hedging decisions, and uh, that's what I uh, chose to do was uh, hedge a lot of my cattle. We saw an opportunity that uh, we haven't seen in the last oh, 22 months where we were actually over our break-evens. And uh, I took advantage and, and locked in a, uh, basically 100% of my calves. Not bad. Not bad. Now, Kurt, when you're, 
when you're making that decision, so many times, and we're seeing it today, the unhedged producer today is able to capture that uh, that incredible rally we've had. And folks are, so I was in Nebraska and Kansas earlier this week talking to a lot of uh, cattle producers, cattle feeders, and I, I was a little nervous that they were maybe getting the wrong message from that story, that they were thankful they weren't hedged because they were able to capture all of this run. Now, you're choosing to hedge 100%. How do you deal with that decision six months from now if this market puts another 10, 12 bucks on? Well, I, I deal with it uh, pretty easy because um, last, well, last year, let's say, uh, you know, cash was over the board, um, you know, run on a positive basis for so long. A lot of us uh, were kind of unprotected, and we said, hey, uh, let's just ride this thing open. And uh, when our cattle got ready, uh, you know, the markets had turned, and we saw some pretty substantial losses. And, uh, you know, we, we battled through the last 20 months of uh, losses in, in the cattle feeding business. And when I look at uh, some profits that I can lock in, um, and if we continue to run a positive basis with where I hedge the cattle today, uh, I'll take advantage of that positive basis also. And, and, you know, I'm satisfied with that, with that figure. And, uh, it's time to, uh, kind of re replenish the, the stockpile by having some positive gains again. Right. So yeah, I can, I can sleep a lot better at night, uh, just because the market's been pretty volatile, you know, huh. um, I'm a little concerned with, uh, I, I like our new administration that we have in place, but uh, I know there's been some talk about uh, some of the trade deals that, that mm -hmm. he wants to do, and and uh, it, it makes us feel just a little bit nervous out here that uh, maybe some of these other countries might have a little pushback towards some of his new policies until they're in place. And uh, I just felt like it was one of those... Uh, times where you know let's let's go ahead and take a profit now and uh you know actually go forward right yeah let's put something in our pocket rather than uh, making those nervous calls to the banker uh after letting a load go and looking at some losses yep and and we've done that you know the last couple of years where we were we were waiting and and unfortunately it didn't work out so i think uh it was just time to take advantage of it Kurt, I wanted to talk to you. One of the things we've seen change in the cattle industry over the past 15 years is the incredible increase in the amount of beef that is now grading choice and higher. You know, we just every year where yields are getting a little better, but the quality continues to improve. Is that something that you think is changing on the calf genetics side, or is it something that guys are just running feed yards better and we're maximizing the efficiencies of these animals? You know, I would say there's a couple reasons for that. One, I think genetics. Um, I think we've seen a lot of these cow-calf guys, um, you know, improve their genetics. Uh, and why not? You know, it, it costs the same to raise a poor quality animal or, you know, a lesser quality animal as it does to raise the best. And I think a lot of people have seen that uh, let's, let's improve our genetics and so I think that's one of the areas. You know, the other area is if people have noticed, you're seeing more cattle 
being fed in the Midwest. Um, a lot of that has to do with the ethanol plants that kind of have sprouted up through the Midwest. Um, Iowa especially has uh, started to feed more cattle. And when you uh, feed cattle with uh, corn in the diet, it does improve the quality uh, of that animal. And so I think uh, the cattle being brought back into the Midwest area to be finished out, primarily using corn as a staple in the diet, uh, has also been the other thing that's improved some of these quality grades that uh, that we're seeing out there. And I, I think that also is a testament why we're maybe seeing our export numbers and demand for beef where they're at is because we are finishing out, raising and finishing uh, a higher quality product that... Uh, a lot of those foreign countries, especially Japan and China, uh, are wanting that high-quality beef. And that's something that uh, we're starting to provide a lot more of it. And uh, I think it has to do with genetics and the fact that they're fed here in the Midwest. You bet. Now, just to uh, piggyback on that point, I saw a chart earlier today from uh, Cassie Fish. It's actually from the uh, New Frontier Capital Markets. They were tracking year-to-date beef exports 2017 versus this time in 2016 we're up 44 percent to japan 17 percent to canada 25 percent to mexico 26 percent to south korea 24 percent higher going to china you're exactly right people are choosing that high quality product you know and, and that's the one thing that uh is a very positive side you know we talked about it earlier on on my hedging decisions uh, people would say, hey, our demand is good, our exports are good, but that's the one thing. Can we keep those exports at the levels that they are now? And until we really see what our Trump uh, presidency is going to do for trade, it might be in question that we sustain those exports. I feel that we will. Um, I'm very positive on our outlook that uh, – we are going to see strong and continued demand for U.S. beef. Um, but I'm also very skeptical, too, that, uh, you know, what we what we experienced over the last two years in the cattle market where, you know, we were short on, on uh, beef numbers. Uh, not only just we had the lowest, uh, was it three years ago, we had the lowest cow herd numbers since in the early 50s. Yep. And... I don't feel that we've really replenished all those cows. You know, we had a disaster in uh, the Dakotas with that blizzard that we lost a lot of females. Uh, Texas had the, the drought. They sold a lot of females that went to market, also kind of in that area. And then, you know, the fires uh, kind of through the Kansas, Oklahoma, uh, Colorado area. You know, we lost a lot of mamas there. So I think numbers numbers are, are lower as far as uh, females that are out there. But, uh, you know, we saw the last two years with those low numbers, the only thing the cattle market could do was to, was to continue to fall lower. And so the thing I've learned in the last two years, just because the signs are there that, hey, we have low numbers, cattle should be high with supply and demand, doesn't always mean that the market follows that. And right. so... I think we're in that time period now where I think demand is good. I really think supply isn't there either. I, I don't see that we have the numbers that people think we have. So the market should be higher, but yet the last two years proved us wrong. And so that's why I've been a little cautious 
uh, to think that we're going to sustain our exports and sustain these prices that we've seen. You know, we've had a nice rally. Cash cattle, uh, you know, have been bringing in the 130s still uh, locally. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty darn good price considering we fell back to, you know, $93, $94 not that many months ago. Yeah, that's true. What if, hypothetically, we do get this market open to China and we can start exporting U.S. beef there? What do you see happening for the cattle markets? If if we can open China's market uh, up even further, you mean? Yeah. You know, China, everybody says China is, is the answer, and they are, it, it is a very important part of our uh, industry, uh, but I think it's going to take some time for China to really truly believe uh, that uh, they just want mainly U.S. beef. You know, we had that Brazil uh, news here mm -hmm. a week ago, I believe, that, uh, you know, they were going to stop buying Brazilian beef. But I really think it, it, it has to deal with us as U.S. producers to tell our story. Uh, that maybe means a few more... Uh, you know, kind of trade missions on our part. I know uh, our Iowa Cattlemen's uh, Meat Federation, and uh, they go over there. They uh, try to educate them. Here's our product. Um, I think we have to tell our story uh, a little more to sustain uh, those foreign exports. And if we can prove to them that, you know, we have a consistent, safe product, you know, everybody's worried about the safety of what they eat, and they should. But yet, we have been probably one of the leading countries to have one of the safest food supplies out there. And, uh, you know, we just uh, at the first of the year had to implement the VFDs that uh, everybody, you know, some people maybe said uh, uh, was, was the wrong thing to do. You know, we're getting VFDs when we uh, treat our cattle. Um, I guess it's just another regulation that we have to deal with. But uh, once we can sustain uh, proof that our product is safe and the quality is there, I feel those export markets will, will increase. And I'm, I'm very optimistic for the, the future of cattle feeding uh, here in the Midwest and hopefully in Iowa. You know, we talked about some of the regulations earlier, just a little bit environmentally. Um, I know they were wanting us to cover our manure stockpiles. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's one of the, the other issues that, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I want to look at a deep pitted building is just to comply with, uh, with the DNR uh, with our manure. And, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, our regulations aren't too strict right now, but uh, I'm sure that there's some people that would like to see us regulated even more, but yet it all gets back to what I touched on earlier, where people just expect their food to be in the supermarket or to be in the refrigerator. And um, really we need to do a better job educating um, not only our foreign exports, but also our, our consumers here at home, how we care for our animals and also that we're going to do what's right because by doing what's right is also what helps us make money. You know, uh, there's no reason why we want to be inefficient in raising our cattle or feed drugs that we don't have to feed. Um, nobody wants to have a higher cost of gain 
um, if there's no benefit. So I think once we tell our story, we're going to see these, uh, hopefully, see our cattle markets, you know, just gain some ground and, and maybe uh, not be as uh, volatile as what we've seen over the last 24 months. Well, that was spoken like a true cattle feeder, optimistic <laughs> to the end. I love it. Kurt, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. No problem, Mike and Delaney. Uh, thanks a lot. Well, thank you again so much to Kurt Dahlmeyer. We really appreciate him taking the time out of his busy day. He texted me earlier and said that they were vaccinating today at my house. So uh, I'm sure he was pretty busy, but we uh, really appreciate him stepping out to do the interview with us. You bet. And, you know, it's kind of fun this week. We are uh, really talking proteins with uh, Scott Heater mm-hmm. on on Monday and talked to eggs yesterday, cattle today. Who am I missing? Am I missing another one in there? No, but tomorrow we will be talking to the U.S. Meat Export Federation. So it's pretty much just a protein-packed week. That's right, which is the way every week ought to be. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> go out, buy a pork loin, buy a ribeye, go buy some eggs, fry up some bacon. This is America, folks. Let's eat this meat. Delaney, should we uh, let the people go? Let's do it. And we'll see you all again tomorrow.